You know, it's always true, or almost always true, that the, the church is not as strong or as weak as we think. It's almost always possible to look at the glass proverbially half full or half empty. So if you want to think about good news in terms of the global church, it's not hard to find absolutely remarkable news. For example, in 1800, perhaps 1% of all Protestant Christians lived outside of Europe and North America, or colonies, although not anymore colonies, thank you very much. By 1900, that number had risen to 10%. So just a little over 100 years ago, that Edinburgh Mission Conference, which Alistair mentioned, only 10% of Protestants lived out lived outside of Europe. And today, that figure stands around two-thirds of all Protestants are outside of Europe in North America. The church continues to grow by tens of thousands a day in sub-Saharan Africa. The annual baptismal totals for places like Nigeria or the Democratic Republic of the Congo are higher, much, much higher than those traditional Christian lands of Italy, France, Spain, or Poland. There are almost twice as many Presbyterians in South Korea as in the United States. We have here at this church uh, a few folks who are from the Presbyterian Church in Cameroon, which is more than twice as large as the Presbyterian Church in America. In 1900, if you looked at the Christian population, northerners, you just think of roughly northern hemisphere, outnumbered southerners 2.5 to 1. By 2050, the proportions will be almost exactly reversed. It is certainly true that today there are more professing Christians, there are more churches, and there are more language groups with access to the gospel than ever before. There's been a tremendous missionary movement, and in so many ways over the past 200 years, it has been remarkably, God-besottedly, to channel my piper, successful. And yet, it only takes a little bit of digging into some of those numbers to realize that often Christianity is the proverbial mile wide and an inch deep. And in many of those places, which are great Christian success stories, quote unquote, they would be rife with animism and syncretism. And the very question that we're considering in these days, what is the mission of the church? To some degree, it's perhaps our success and our great wealth, at least in the Western world, that has precipitated so much of the drift on this question that we might be tempted to look out and think, well, aren't there really Christians almost everywhere? And with all of the resources that we have, shouldn't we be doing something about everything? Is this task of really going to the hardest places, is this still the task that Jesus has for us as our first and utmost mission priority? I talked yesterday about what the mission of the church is not, And I want to talk in this final session about what is the mission of the church. And to do so, I want to go to a specific text. So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. 
let me read these verses and then explain to you why I'm landing on these verses. Because you should ask yourself the question, well, why are you picking this text? Couldn't anybody get up here and pick something else and say, well, here's Jesus feeding the 5,000, here's Jesus healing lepers, and there is the mission of the church. I saw, this was years ago at the kind of beginning of the internet, I take it that this, uh, I hope, has been corrected. I think it was a congregational church somewhere that they had on the banner of their church website, the verse that said, bow down to me and all this will be yours, (laughs) which is from Satan tempting Jesus. So not, you you can't take verses out of context is my point. So let me read this to you and then explain why I think this passage in particular is so salient in answering the question, what is the mission of the church? I'll begin at verse 19 of Acts 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And then these next three verses in particular, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Before we look at what is in this text, in particular verses 21, 22, and 23, let me make the case why this passage is uniquely situated to answer the question, what is the mission of the church? For starters, we're in the book of Acts, and Acts is the inspired history of that early mission of the church. Acts is meant to pick up where Luke's first book, the gospel, leaves off, which is Jesus' command in Luke 24, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, and then he promises to send the Holy Spirit that they will be his witnesses. We see Luke picking up the same narrative in Acts 1. The church is gathered in Jerusalem. They're waiting for the promise, just as we saw in Luke 24. And the second volume begins with those who will be commissioned As we read in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do and teach. In other words, Luke's gospel dealt with the beginning. The gospel according to Luke was what Jesus began to do and teach by implication. Acts here is about what Jesus is going to continue to do and teach. Now, Jesus is going to ascend into heaven in the very first few verses. So what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach, he is doing through this apostolic mission. Acts 1.8 gives us the table of contents for the book. They will be Christ's witnesses. You know, these concentric circles, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And you can trace that out very deliberately in the book of Acts. We'll see a little bit later why it ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome, there at the very center and heart of the empire. From there, the implication is he will be able to preach the gospel freely, that the apostolic message has gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and is now has an open door to the ends of the earth. So to situate ourselves in the book of Acts is to come very near to this question, what is the mission of the church? And then in particular, this passage in Acts 14 is an especially good place to answer that question. At the beginning of Acts 13, just turn back there, we read in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, that setting apart for this missionary service is referenced again in the verses I read at the end of chapter 14, which is why they circle back to Antioch. In chapter 13, we have the first official commissioning of missionaries. Now, the church has suffered persecution, and they've been scattered that way, but this is the first time the church intentionally sends out Christian workers with a mission to another location. The first time the church intentionally sends out Christian workers from one place to another with a mission to fulfill. They travel to Cyprus, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and from there back through Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, Perga, and back to Antioch in Syria, which is where chapter 14 concludes. That completes what we call, and you find in the back of your Bible with a lot of squiggly lines, Paul's first missionary journey. When you look at the end of chapter 14, notice verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This is the first missionary potluck in the church. The first time that they got, well, they don't have slide projectors anymore, thankfully, Uh, but the first time they hooked up the PowerPoint And this was the church that sent them out. They've been gone and they traveled all these places. And then it's as if Paul and Barnabas said, so glad you're here. Thank you. We couldn't have done it without you. Go ahead. Get some some ham on buns and get some more drinks if you need it. I just want to show you some pictures of here we were. Oh, there's Paul. Uh, He got stoned there. But click through there. He got dragged through the city there. He's feeling much better now. And they went through city by city sharing what had happened. So these summary verses... 21, 22, 23, were right to infer that this was the sort of thing that Paul and Barnabas likely shared. Here we are. We're back at our sending church. You want to know what our mission looked like? You want to know what we just did as your missionaries? We got some good slides for you. And we find it there highlighted in verses 21, 22, and 23. This is the three-legged stool of mission work, an apostolic model for missionary service. How churches ought to be spending their mission dollars, what mission committees should be aiming for. Notice this apostolic model has three parts. Number one, new converts. You see verse 21, they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. So they 
Sid, here we are back at Antioch. Thanks for sending us out. First thing we want to say is we made some new disciples. We had converts. Second, new communities. You see this in verse 23. They had appointed elders for them in every church. So Paul was not just blitzing through these places just to collect the cards to be able to report back and say how many conversions they had, but it was very institutional. They wanted to form these new communities, and so they appointed elders. And then, third, nurtured churches. New converts, new communities, nurtured churches. That's in the middle, verse 22. So they strengthen. They go back to some of the places they had originally been, just like Brooks talks about going back. The Yimby Yimby have a, have a church there, a good, strong, vibrant church. It goes back to strengthen them. We might think in this category today of various Bible schools or seminaries or training organizations where there is a church and yet there's a need to have strengthening resources to make sure that they are doctrinally and ethically sound and that they have the resources in order to maintain that soundness, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. Now, Christian missionaries may be active in one aspect of this work more than another. I want you to hear me clearly. Isn't that every organization or every person on your mission budget must be checking the box in all three categories, but they must have a mindset where they keep all three of these things in mind, even if someone, maybe specifically that pastor who's planting a church and someone else is with a strengthening along the side and someone else is maybe doing pioneering evangelism and just meeting people in the coffee shops. But you must keep all of these in mind, this three-legged stool, and as you know, you get one of those off and your chair's going to fall over. Eckhart Schnabel, whose name I mentioned yesterday, has three points which are almost identical to the ones I just mentioned. So if you want to put it a different way, here's how Schnabel puts it. Missionaries communicate the news of Jesus the Messiah and Savior to people who have not heard or accepted this news. That's what I put under new converts or evangelism. Second, missionaries communicate a new way of life that replaces at least partially the social norms and behavioral patterns of the society in which the new believers have been converted. That would actually be more like my third point with the nurtured churches. And notice what Schnabel says there. Uh, We don't have, uh, this isn't going to be a sermon on insider movements, but it's really key. He says, create a new way of life that replaces, at least partially, so we're not asking people that you can't wear any of the same clothes or you can't speak the same language. We're not making people Westerners or Americans, but partially the social norms and behavioral patterns of the society in which they come from are going to have to be replaced because in every culture, to lesser and greater degrees, there will be aspects that are manifestly not Christian. Remember when Paul goes into Acts, uh, in Acts 17, when he goes to Athens, the famous Mars Hill, Areopagus, and that's often a classic text for contextualization. And there are some good clues there for contextualization. But I, think I, I think I heard Zane Pratt say it this way. Contextualization is not to make 
the gospel comfortable, but to make the gospel clear. So contextualization is not, now this is easy for you. Now all of the bridges are smooth. There's no cost to this. This is an easy thing for you to become a Christian. Contextualization is to make it clear, to make sure you understand what the gospel is about and how it applies in your context. So remember, when Paul does that contextualization, we say, oh, it's great. He quotes from one of their poets, and even uh, they said, we are all his offspring. And look at Paul's making all these cultural connections. But don't forget what animates his spirit at the very beginning. It says he was agitated because he looked around and the city was full of idols. And he didn't stop with a cool moment of cultural connection. Really talked about, you know, the Jesus figure in The Matrix or the new Top Gun movie or something. No, he said, what you worship is unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. I'll tell you who the God is. And he went on to tell them a number of things which they would have found disagreeable. So you leave behind certain aspects, behavioral patterns. And then the third sentence from Schnabel, missionaries integrate new believers into a new community. It's saying the same thing, just different language. New converts, new communities, nurture churches, or you could say evangelism, discipleship, church planting, to put it into very familiar language. That's what the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to do. And that's when they came back to Antioch. They said, here's what we did. Yeah, we shared the gospel with people who never heard of Jesus. And we appointed elders because we have churches. We're not just interested in leaving and having decision cards. And we wanted to make sure that we didn't just blitz through. And because we have three people, we said it's a church. They're actually strengthened and able to multiply and be a functioning church. One of the most abused verses in all the Bible. (laughs) When two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. All you got to do is just get two Christians in a park. And pro- if you got three Christians and one of them went to a Christian college, they're going to play the guitar. <laughs> you, you got worship mute. You are ready to have a church. Well, Jesus there, that wonderful statement is about the exercise of church discipline. So if you want to have two or three, and there I am in the midst of you, it's to exercise church discipline. Whatever you bind on heaven is bound on earth and loose heaven is loosed on earth. That's what Jesus is talking about. Church is not plural for Christian. Now, a church is made up of plural Christians, but it is something more than that. It has certain marks of a true church, and there's a certain order to the church, even if different denominations uh, don't always agree on how that order is conceived. There is an order to it, and there are ordinances or sacraments. So a church, Paul established churches Again, Paul is not implying that every missionary must be involved in all of this, but everyone in whatever aspect of your mission work must keep this in mind. Uh, Many of you will have more overseas experience than I have, but in various trips I've had uh, around the world, speaking places or sometimes visiting missionaries, you do see this three-legged stool get pretty wobbly. And there are some folks and organizations that are really good about the evangelism. We're going to get here, and we're going to get in the coffee shop, and we're having just day by day, we're just having dozens of spiritual conversations. 
and it's an afterthought or not even a thought to think about the church. And sometimes they can be ignorant of even already established indigenous churches and just Westerners just swoop in and are there to do their, their coffee evangelism without any awareness of what the church is doing. Or sometimes you have groups that are so keen to make that cultural connection that they actually never get over to the evangelism. I was telling somebody yesterday during the break, I remember talking to somebody in my previous denomination who worked in the Middle East with Christian Muslim dialogue, and I knew him, at least his reputation was, uh, my opinion, quite liberal. And so I asked him, you've, you've been doing this for years and years and years, this just fostering Muslim-Christian dialogue, and they were, you know, in very highfalutin places, and the government liked it, these Muslim-Christian dialogues. I said, how many Muslims have you seen come to know Christ? Well, I can't think of any. Well, okay, you know, God's sovereign. And I said, "Uh, have you seen any Christians become Muslims? Oh, yeah, plenty of times. Well, let me just say, that's not a good missionary model when you're working in, in reverse, uh, I, I'm all about not having to produce numbers, but if, if, if you're going there and saying, I'm making more deconverts than converts, then I would get a new missionary strategy or model. So this three-legged stool helps us understand what missionary work should entail. So on the one hand, we want to avoid the danger of making our mission too small By that I mean some Christians and Christian groups think only about conversion. That's the only thing that counts. They just got to blitz in there as fast as they can, maybe so they can report back to their churches and say, yes, we won some souls. We threw up a bed sheet uh, between some trees and and we showed a movie. And these people had never seen a movie before, so, I, but, so it seemed pretty cool to them, and they said they wanted to be Christians, and wow, 300 converts. Man, and that's how some people think of missions. It's always, always speed. I like to say as Presbyterians, we may be small, but we are slow. <laughs> so we have our own dangers. But some well-meaning folks, it's all about that. But of course, you realize Jesus did not say go into all the world and make decisions for Christ, but make disciples for Christ. Not looking at just getting somebody to show a hand, to sign a card, to throw their pine cone into the fire as we did at summer camp, but actually to be a disciple. On the other hand, we want to avoid the danger of making our mission too broad, And to a large degree, that's what I was talking about with yesterday's message. Again, well-meaning Christians, not judging their hearts, will act as if everything counts as mission, everything, improving job skills, digging wells, setting up medical centers, establishing great schools, working for better crop yields, all of which can be ways to adorn the gospel or can be simply good ways to help people in love around the world, an expression of Christian compassion. But I hope it's very plain for you to see that that's not at all the sort of work that we see Paul and Barnabas setting out to do in Acts. Again, 
It's not to say that God may not be calling different Christians, and I'm talking just in a generic sort of sense that they feel like this is what they have gifts to do and want to do. So you, you may, I was sharing yesterday with someone in my last church, we had a, a geologist who worked for the state of Michigan, and he took a, a trip with a Christian organization every summer, and they went and did wells and places that needed clean water. It was wonderful. And we were happy to, to pray for him and send him out. And he was a Christian geologist doing a good thing to help people get clean water. Now, to his credit, he didn't ask that that come under the auspices of the mission committee or the mission budget. And if he had asked, I would have wanted to follow up with some more questions. Okay, what, what is the goal then once they... Is this an avenue, an opportunity to then share the gospel uh, and again, you don't have to apologize to go to Africa and want people to get clean water. That's a good thing to do. What we're talking about, however, is what is the mission of the church? What is that thing and what are those tasks that if the church does not do them, no one else will? If, if you remember nothing else and you're just sitting there sometime in your mission committee or in your church or your organization and trying to think through, what do we do? That's at least one salient question. Are we doing the things that only the church will do? Or are we doing the things that if we didn't do them, Jeff Bezos might give money to do them, Bill Gates might give money to do them, uh, Elon Musk might fly to Mars and bring back something there to help people with? Are, are other people, is uh, some agency from the UN going to do this? Is some funding from the US government going to help with this? Or is this uniquely what the church of Jesus Christ must do or no one else will do it? We see in the book of Acts a very clear record. The mission described in Acts is focused on the proclamation of the Word of God and bearing witness to Christ. Even a cursory overview of Acts bears this out. In Acts 1, Matthias is chosen to replace Judas that he might become a witness to Christ's resurrection, 122. In Acts 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost, expounding the Scriptures, bearing witness to Christ, calling people to faith and repentance, and we read 3,000 souls were added to the church. 2.41. In Acts 3, Peter heals a lame beggar in Jesus' name. That's a good deed. And then he uses the occasion to bear witness to Christ and call people to repentance. See chapter 3, verse 15 and verse 19. After they proclaimed the resurrection, many more heard, and 5,000 believed. Chapter 4, verse 2 and 4. Peter and John then testified before the council to the crucifixion, and when released from custody, the believers prayed they might continue to speak the word with boldness, chapter 4, 29 and 31. While in prison in Acts 5, an angel of the Lord sets the apostles free, commands them to, quote, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all this words of life, chapter 5, verse 20, and they heard this, Luke records, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach, chapter 5, 21. You could go through... Every chapter in Acts like that. Chapter 6, the apostles appoint the proto-deacons so that they, the apostles, can devote themselves to what? The Word of God and prayer. 
In Acts 7, Stephen bears witness to Christ. He walks to the Old Testament. He calls them to repent and believe. In Acts chapter 8, Philip proclaims Christ in Samaria. They receive the word of God. Over and over, Luke makes clear in every chapter of the book, the mission of Jesus is being fulfilled as the word of God increases and multiplied. Chapter 12, 24. You find that language all throughout the book, increased and multiplied, increased and multiplied. Everywhere the word goes in Acts, there's opposition, and everywhere the word goes, some people believe. Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the word in Cyprus and Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. They preach the good news, and all along the way, they find that dual response, which we should expect. Some will believe. And some will hate the message that is being proclaimed. And then, as I alluded to at the very beginning, just turn to the end of Acts. Because at first, it seems like Acts ends on sort of this anticlimactic note. But it's really the perfect way that Luke wants to bookend this book and actually his two-volume book about what Jesus began and what Jesus continues to do and teach concludes, verse 30 of chapter 28, he lived there, Paul did two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, at first that seems strange because if you know the book of Acts, you know the last several chapters, Paul is just, he's got to get to Rome. He wants to get to Caesar. And here he is in Rome, but we're left with the question, uh, did he make it? To, did he get the audience with Caesar? Uh, did he keep going? Depending on when Luke wrote this, he might have already known that Paul is going to be martyred. But he doesn't end this like a biography of the Apostle Paul. And now we're going to wrap up the last years of Paul's life and here's how he died. Because the focus is not on Paul, the missionary. It is on this mission. And so Acts 1 begins, remember, with the disciples asking about the kingdom. They still don't understand what the kingdom is about. Are you going to bring the kingdom, restore the kingdom to Israel? And then it ends with this language of the kingdom, proclaiming and teaching with boldness and without hindrance. It's pretty much the perfect way to end Acts, that this gospel, which was going to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, it ends in the very last word of the book without hindrance. It is on its way. Paul is preaching this word, this gospel of the kingdom. We don't have time for a message here or even much of a parenthesis about the kingdom except for me to remind you of this. There there is no place in the New Testament where we are told to build the kingdom. There's only one place that maybe you could even say the kingdom grows, and that's the parable with the mustard seed. And even there, I don't think we're meant to conclude that the kingdom as the kingdom grows, but rather we will be surprised at the end of the age to see the kingdom influence. Now, I know we've all used this language. Uh, I've used this language before. But if we want to be most careful and biblical, the New Testament verbs associated with the kingdom are not active verbs. It is not 
expand the kingdom, build the kingdom, but rather receive the kingdom, enter into the kingdom, because the, the kingdom is that heavenly realm which is breaking in to the here and now. It's not something that we need to, with our plans and ingenuity, build. It's not a kingdom in an earthly sense that you can say, well, look, the, the borders just expanded of the kingdom. The kingdom is, and God has it break in. It's the heavenly world breaking in to the now. Think of it like the sun. You don't have to go build the sun. You're tempted to do that in Michigan. You are. You don't have to build the sun. You don't extend the sun. The sun doesn't grow. Somebody says, well, technically the solar flares are okay, but really, it does for the rest of us. It's not, okay, it doesn't grow. But what does the sun do? It can shine brighter based on the clouds. You can feel its warmth more or less. You can say this is a cloudy day. This is a sunny day. It can be more clearly in the sky and more visible. I think it's an analogy with the kingdom. We don't build the kingdom, expand the kingdom. We receive it. We enter into it by faith, and we welcome it. We pray for the kingdom to come. That is, for more of Christ's reign and rule, just like in heaven, the Lord's Prayer, where everything is done according to His will, may it so be done here on earth. So let me finish by suggesting two implications from this answer, what is the mission of the church, and then just a final concluding thought. Here's implication number one. Those currently serving as missionaries, those hoping to serve as missionaries, those overseeing missionaries, should consider whether Paul's priorities are their priorities. Now, let me just make one important qualification, not qualification, nuance, perhaps. It is true that the places that have yet to be reached with the gospel, it's very unlikely you're going to have church planters stamped on your visa, missionaries stamped on your visa. You're going to enter those creative access places. You're going to be an English teacher. You're going to Uh, do business, you are going to open a coffee shop, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a nurse, you're going to be an agronomist. So yes, there are many different ways in which you are going to land in that place. And let me also add that it will quite often take time, years to learn the language. You will build relationships. And so it isn't that this three-legged stool means you get off the plane here you are, looking around, unreached language group. This is just what Radius wanted. All right, guys, who's ready for Jesus? Well, you should do that, you know, somewhat as soon as you can. But of course, common sense is you have to learn the language and you have to uh, build relationships with people. Your, your aim is not to get kicked out of the country as soon as you can so you can go back and be a martyr to the cause. Your, your aim is to be there as long as you can, as faithfully as you can. So when I say set priorities, I don't mean that you might not have to be doing other things to get into the country toward the aim of doing this other thing. What I am saying is Paul's priorities 
They preached the gospel to those who did not know. They appointed elders in every town. They strengthened the church. That those ought to be your priorities. And here I'm borrowing the term from Peter Drucker, the business guru. He says, you don't have priorities if you don't really have posteriorities. You're posterior. Prior means top, posterior means bottom. Anyone can have priorities. If you tell me, I got 10 priorities in this church, you don't have priorities. You got a wish list. If your mission agency has 15 priorities, you don't have priorities. To have a priority, something that is at the head, something you are saying yes to, it means there are things you say no to. That's the hardest part. I I, I will tell people when I teach pastoral ministry at Reformed Theological Seminary, one of the hardest things about being a pastor, because you didn't think you were getting into the no business as a pastor. You got into the ministry because you're in the yes business. Yes, I want to pray for you. Yes, I want to help you. Yes, I want to, you know, bring these two people together in marriage. You want to say yes, but you're not a good pastor if you don't learn. You got to say no. And it's extra true when it comes to missions. And it would be nice if the options were team A, going to go preach Christ, plant a church. Team B, ninja assassins. Well, let's pray about it, guys. No, you're going to have, and team B and C and D have good things that they want to do with good hearts, very likely. And you will have to say no. If you say yes to every priority, you do not have priorities. It requires the very hard, painful, unpopular, disciplined work of saying, brother or sister, I can see your heart is in this. You want to go and, you know, be a Christian filmmaker in Hollywood and make good movies that are going to teach about the true and the good and the beautiful and, you know, good on you, mate. (laughs) I wish you all the the best as you try to do that. But we're going to say no to that as a part of our missionary budget. So you have to have priorities. You have to say no to some things. And implication number two, we should aim with our missions budget, therefore, to support missionaries who have for their goals the things we see in Acts 14. There's certainly a place for Christians to support all manner of good works, development, initiatives, but let them be for adorning the gospel. Let them be as an open door for the gospel or or set it aside as something else, your diaconal work, your global diaconate. But as we think about mission, as we think about the task for which we are sending people out, it must be constrained by these priorities. See, there's a difference between Matthew 28 and Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10, do good to all people as you have opportunity, especially to the household of faith. So there's a great verse, no apologies for doing good to all people. But did you see there? Do good as you have opportunity. You're all going to have opportunities, your schools, your neighborhoods, uh, disaster relief. There's opportunities. Do good as you have opportunity. But it's striking that Jesus' final words were not the Holy Spirit is going to clothe you from on high and give you power to go out into the world and do good. No, go out into the world to bear witness, to speak, to say something. 
Is your church, is my church, are we doing those things that only the church of Jesus Christ will do? And notice then, back in Acts 14, and here we'll bring this to a close, verse 22 again, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Many other speakers, Wayne and others, have talked about suffering, Ian, this morning. But just to highlight there, part of Paul's strengthening message was to remind them that this is going to be difficult, it requires endurance. Maybe we will be threatened, attacked, stoned, dragged out of the city like Paul, or maybe we will be shunned or ridiculed online or disowned by our family, but there will be a cost. In some ways, just follow me carefully here, in some ways, we do have it easier than Paul and Barnabas. Travel is easier. Communication is easier, medical care, hygiene are better. You think about the, all the missionary stories that they got on the boat with their coffins. They were never coming back. And how many of kids died in infancy as was so common? So in many ways, we have it easier. You can go and get most places in the world, some place not far away to get internet access. You can still follow your sports team. You can still play fantasy football and be a missionary somewhere. And yet, there are some ways in which our task is even more difficult, if I dare say that, than what Paul had to do. Paul did not have to learn a new language. It helped. He already knew some. Uh, I was just in speaking at a conference in Geneva, I go to easy places. I just look for easy places. Geneva, Switzerland. I can tell you why the World Council of Churches sets up there and the UN sets up there. That's a good place if you want to go. And I was there, and a guy was picking us up, a student at the, at the Bible school, and was picking us up, and he was speaking in broken English, which was a whole lot better than my wee oui, wee, oui, pardon, France. Uh, my French knows nothing. And he said, I have a joke. He said, what do you call someone who speaks multiple languages? They're bilingual. He said, what do you call someone who speaks one language? American. <laughs> well, I sort of resemble that remark. So it helped that Paul knew multiple languages. But think about it. He traveled within the boundaries of the Roman Empire. He ministered among those who shared something of the same educational system, something of the same political tradition, even if the religious history was different. So you hear me, it's not to take anything away, of course, from what Paul did, but sending someone here to Indonesia or Eastern Europe or West Africa or places where the gospel has not been known at all will normally require greater cross-cultural efforts than Paul had to undergo. So in some ways, the task has gotten easier, and in some ways, it is as difficult as ever. There's a reason that these people yet to have access to the gospel have yet to receive the gospel. They're hard to get to. And so we must be prepared. There will be tribulation. There will be suffering. And this task will not be fulfilled by short-termers by vacation Bible schools, as wonderful as those things can be for training grounds. It will require those who are committed to go for the long haul. And it will require those many of us 
who will send from our own wealth, who will send from our churches, who will work with sending agencies or training up people to go, it will mean that we have to come to grips with our own finitude. If you don't have priorities, you haven't embraced your own finitude. We live in a world of finite time, finite people, finite resources. So the church cannot do every noble thing there is to do. If the church's mission is what we see here in Acts 14, this three-legged stool, evangelism, church planting, church strengthening, discipleship, then it is going to affect the church's allocation of time, talents, and treasure. If we do everything else, we serve, we bless, we renew this city, we create culture, we transform schools, but we do not make disciples and plant churches, we will be failing at the mission that Christ has given to us. If the church does not teach the nations to obey Christ, no one else will. If our priorities just mirror the same sort of development goals from any NGO or from some secular benefactor, then we as the church of Jesus Christ will be redundant. The ethicist Gilbert Meliander once put it like this, the church risks irrelevance when it makes central in its vocation God's preference for the poor and not his universal favor toward the poor in spirit. I'll finish with this paragraph from J. Gresham Machen, who you heard about in Chad's wonderful address. In 1933, so get out your history, 1933, Great Depression. Not only the Great Depression in this country, but the heyday, the ascendancy of theological liberalism. And J. Gresham Machen sets out to answer the question, what is the church's responsibility in this new age? This is not a new question. Almost 100 years ago, he was asking and answering the same question, and here's what he said. The responsibility of the church in the new age is the same as its responsibility in every age. It is to testify that this world is lost in sin, that the span of human life, no, all the length of human history is infinitesimally small an island in the awful depths of eternity, that there is a mysterious, holy, loving God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all, that he has revealed himself to us in his word and offered communion with himself through Jesus Christ the Lord, that there is no salvation for individuals or for nations save this, but that this salvation is full and free and that whoever possesses it has for himself and for all others to whom he may be the instrument of bringing it, a treasure compared with which all the kingdoms of the earth, no, all the wonders of the starry heavens, are as dust of the street. An unpopular message it is, an impractical message we are told, but it is the message of the Christian church. Neglect it and you will have destruction. Heed it and you will have life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you steal us for this task? Set us, our faces like a flint, to Jerusalem with hearts of great tender affection and compassion and with an absolute resolve to teach and believe what is right and true 
get the gospel right and to get the gospel out and to get the gospel planted, strong, firm, multiplying, established. Bless these dear men and women and their labors. Correct us where we need correction. Strengthen us where we have grown weary of well-doing and set us forward to this great task that you have given us the privilege to herald in Jesus' name, amen.